0: Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes, so each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris, and a special thank you and shout out to New Stand Studio here at One Rock Center. If you want to follow along with them on Twitter, it's at Rock Center NYC or Instagram at Rockefeller Center. Y'all, Christmas in New York City is happening. Like it is in full swing today as we're recording They are recording a lot of the performances for the tree lighting tomorrow night, which I will be photographing, which is one of my favorite days of the year. And by the time this episode goes live, I mean, New York City will be like the movie Elf, Buddy the Elf, like full swing. I mean, it's real life. Like people are like, what's living in New York like? And it's a lot of things, but Christmas time, really, I feel like I am running around like Buddy the Elf, like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. It truly is magical. So if you have a chance to come out to Rockefeller Center, please do. And so grateful that they produce and execute this podcast for me. Also, I've said it a gazillion times, thank you to my Patreon community for the lovely support and community that we are building over there. I am just talking about... Basically, what happens on Patreon is all the things I am not really ready to hash out with 100,000 people on the interwebs, but within a a community of about 100 people, we're talking about topics like uh, Jesus and LGBTQIA plus issues. I'm talking about a recent breakup that I went through. Yeah, you might not know I was dating someone this year and I'm going through a breakup, but my Patreon community does. So if you want to join that community, if you want to be a part of something that's a little bit more intimate, come join us over at patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. Now, before we get started, I do want to give a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about some adult Issues and topics. So, if you have younger ears around you, either put on your headphones or take a listen a little later. We're also going to be talking about sex and sexual assault and abusive messages many people have received in the Christian church, and also issues of rape and marital rape. So, We are going to be having an incredible conversation, but I want you to know ahead of time that that also will be coming. So I want to love you well in that. Now, moving on from that, getting into today's episode, I want to say that I think that we are in a season in history where there are... Badass women rising up, writing books, using their voice in such powerful ways. I mean, women have always been amazing. I mean, women helped fund the ministry of Jesus. Women are, we have babies out of our own bodies. Like I still sometimes have existential moments about that. But it seems like we are in an interesting time, at least in Western evangelical Christian history, where women are starting to rise up and say, you know what? It's time that my voice is being heard. The past few years, we've had books come out like The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr, which freaking rocked my world. Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobe Dume. And the book that we're talking about today— is one that I heard about probably about six months ago. It's called The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended by Sheila Ray Gregoire, Rebecca Gregoire-Lindenbach, and Joanna Sawatsky. And I will tell you, I was both intrigued and skeptical because I'm like, okay, another Christian book about sex. Like, Is this going to be just as problematic as I Kissed Dating Goodbye? I should have known. I should have known because Sheila is a freaking rock star. I have this book highlighted up to the wazoo. And I cannot wait to talk with the Sheila Ray Guaguar today on the podcast, author of The Great Sex Rescue and Powerhouse of a Woman who has an incredible message to share. Sheila, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm excited. We're going to have some fun.
0: Yes. I have so many feelings. I mean, honestly, I told you this before we started recording. I was trying to finish up your book before a conversation today. I literally have 10 pages left. And I just had this moment where I was like, I could rush through the last 10 pages to tell Sheila that I finished her book, but I didn't want to. Like, I wanted to Mm. savor it. I feel... Every single page of this book is highlighted, underlined. I have questions. I have my own experiences written in the in the corners of the pages. And I feel like your book is so important. I'm so, so grateful that you wrote it. And so I haven't finished it. And I, I apologize for that. But I also just want to soak it all up.
1: Well, you got all the important parts. You got all the research <laughs> stuff. You just missed the tearjerker part. So that's yeah. okay. <laughs> hey, I love a good cry.
0: Okay, so I want to hear your book from your perspective, The Great Sex Rescue. Why did you write it? Who is it for? And what would you say is the main message?
1: Okay, well, that's a loaded question. Yeah. So can I answer with a story? Because sure. stories are more fun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I have been blogging. About marriage and sex since 2008. And when I started, I was a mommy blogger at lovehonoredvacuum.com. I did, you know, marriage, housework, parenting, all the stuff that all the mommy bloggers were doing back in 2008. (laughs) And I found that the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. Mm -hmm. So I started, I started writing more and more about sex. By 2012, I had my first sex book out, um, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I was mostly talking in the evangelical sphere. Mm And I kept writing. I made an orgasm course. I created a libido course. I was putting out all of this good information. And yet, no matter how much I blogged, podcasted, whatever, people still had the same issues. Mm. And I was getting really frustrated. And one day, it was January 2019, I was on Twitter. I had a migraine. I didn't want to work. And people were having this debate on Twitter about whether women needed respect or not. And they were, they were referring to Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect, which is the best selling marriage study done in North American churches. So this is like a seriously big book. And I thought, yeah, I need respect. I don't just need love because his thesis is that women need love and men need respect. And it occurred to me I have that book upstairs, but I've never read it. So I went mm. and got it out of the out of my like book closet and I turned to the sex chapter, which is in the section of the book where it talks about his needs. Ah. so it's not even in her needs at all. and I read that chapter and it said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Wow. And I thought, oh and so like it was it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room when I realized how bad the advice being given. To evangelicals is, and this may sound weird, but I'd never read books like e- marriage books before mm-hmm. because I was always afraid of plagiarizing. So I didn't read other people's stuff. I thought, oh, they believe in God. I believe in God. We're all saying the same thing. And then I read this book and I read that what a husband needs is physical release. Like sex is all about ejaculation. There was nothing about intimacy. There was nothing about the clitoris or that women can feel pleasure too. Instead, it said, "Why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? Like there were like six o's and so um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know i and I just don't know anyone who wants to make sex feel good for women who would brag about it taking so little time. Mm. Um, And and it it just occurred to me, if this is the level of advice we're being given, no wonder people have issues. Yeah, yeah. And I started to think, I wonder if I can do something about this. And that's where the great sex rescue came from, is we decided, my team and I decided to do the biggest survey that's ever been done of Christian women to see if evangelical teachings about sex are hurting our marital and sexual satisfaction, specifically our orgasm rates and our Mm -hmm. rates of sexual pain. And
0: to specify, you surveyed over 20,000 women. We did.
1: We thought, go big or go home. Yeah, this wasn't just,
0: <laughs> let me just do this cute little Instagram poll, see what people say, and tell me about what was on that survey, because it sounds like it wasn't one of those, hey, this is going to take 30 seconds.
1: No, we and we actually wanted to do it to academic standards. So we're in the process. where um it's now... The data set is now at Purdue University, so other academics can use it for peer-reviewed articles. Um, we've been reviewed in a peer-reviewed physiotherapy journal. We're working on some peer-reviewed articles ourselves. We're presenting at the American Physiotherapist Conference. So we really wanted to do this mm. properly. Um, On my team, I had my daughter who is a psychometrics grad who's good at survey development. I had Joanna Sawatsky, who um, has a master's in epidemiology, specializing in statistics. So (laughs) like, we knew what we were doing. And it was a minimum of 130 questions. There were more if you had been previously married or whatever. So minimum 130 questions. We asked about marital satisfaction first and then sexual satisfaction. And then we presented people with a whole bunch of different beliefs. Mm. And we asked, have you ever been taught this or have you ever believed it at two different points in time? And from that, we were able to compare people who did believe something with people who didn't believe Mm. something and see how that affected marital and sexual satisfaction. Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for
0: doing a legit survey. Like, I don't understand (laughs) why, as people of faith, we are just like, we put a ragtag team of things together. We do a shoddy job often, but it's like, quote unquote, in the name of Jesus. So we give each other spiritual bypass from being excellent. And so I'm grateful that you guys actually did this very cohesive, comprehensive, up to standard survey because... That's what we need. We need to be excellent in everything we do. And also, I mean, I read the book, but I would love just to hear what are some of the big things you found in this survey that were really surprising to you? And what were some things that weren't surprising?
1: I found the orgasm rate surprising. (laughs) So one of the big things we were trying to measure is what is the orgasm gap? Mm. Um, And by that, I mean... 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter. That is the number that we found in other surveys, other large-scale surveys. We have since surveyed evangelical men since the book came out, and we also found 95%. Mm. So that's a pretty good number, 95%. So we wanted to know how many women say they almost always or always reach orgasm. Um, And it's about 48%. So that leaves us with a 47-point gap. Mm -hmm. That's pretty big. Now, I actually thought the orgasm rate was going to be lower. Yeah, same. (laughs) I made Joanna rerun it massively because I write a sex blog. And so I am inundated every day with people with problems. Mm -hmm. And so I thought things were worse on the ground than Mm -hmm. they actually were. So I thought it would be worse than the 47 points. But 47 points is nothing to brag about. That's still pretty bad.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And even if we're thinking about, oh, I just took a test. What did you get? I got a 95. What did you get? Or, well, I got a 48. I mean, you're failing. (laughs) You're not passing college. You're not like, do not pass, go and collect $200. Mm -hmm. I actually thought it would be lower as well. But forty-eight to get a 48 on a test versus a 95 is a massive difference.
1: Yeah, so that was a big surprise. I think um, the other thing... Maybe this isn't a surprise, but it changed the way that I talk about mm. things. Um, I used to think that, that frequency of sex was an issue in marriage because that's what people tend to fight mm. about. You know, like how often are we going to do it? Someone has a higher libido than someone else. And so how do we resolve that difference? What I realized once we started running the numbers is frequency is not the issue at all. Mm. Frequency is a symptom of something else. And we really need to address the something else. Because if women feel emotionally connected during sex, if they frequently reach orgasm, if there's no porn use in the marriage, if there's no sexual dysfunction, and if they have high marital satisfaction, frequency pretty much takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. So, this myth, there's a myth out there, and you see it in almost all the evangelical books that women just don't like sex, mm-hmm. you know? And so we need to make women have sex. We need to coerce and manipulate women into having sex because if we don't, they're just not going to have sex. Yeah. And that's not true. You know, um, women do like sex as long as it's sex. It's good for them. Yeah. And that feels safe. As I was reading your book, I mean, one of
0: the things you said, if you want to have passionate sex, like passion starts with trust and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And if, I don't feel safe. I can't let go and experience that passion. But something that I was wondering as I was just, you know, page after page, honestly, as I was reading your book, part of me was like, man, I feel like your book is preaching to the choir. Your book is preaching. Your book is sharing a message primarily to women, even though I know you speak to men as well. But I don't know, maybe this is my cynicism of being in Christian culture, but I think more women will read your book than men. And women are like, no shit. (laughs) There's an orgasm gap. (laughs) No shit. The most of the church is saying that men have this physical need that women don't have. Like, we know this. Or maybe some women don't know and that, you know, this book is like, oh my gosh, for the first time ever, I'm learning that I'm not crazy or sinful or bad for having sexual desire. But when I think of women having beautiful sexual experiences, what I think of is, well, if if sex is only said to be revolved around the male experience, a need that a man has, and something that a woman has to do to serve her husband, or that's what the Bible says, so you have to do it, then the entire experience is is revolved around the male experience. And often in Christian culture, um, controlled by a male narrative, then I'm like, well, no wonder it's not fun for us. <laughs> we have one side of the story. And what breaks my heart, and I would love to hear what you think about this, is when I think of Jesus, like Jesus is about relationship and intimacy and dignity and being outward focused. How did we get this so wrong? Because when I'm reading story after story after story in your book, all I I just see, I see male narcissism. I see arrogance. I see entitlement. Mm-hmm. The last thing I see are Christian men who want to love their wives. And it feels so upsetting to me <laughs> as a single woman. And so I just wanted
1: to hear what you thought about that. To tell you the truth, this has been a really hard two years for us mm. as we've been working on this book. I really thought that, if we have a scientific study that shows that these teachings are bad, Mm. that people might listen. And instead the powers that be in the evangelical world have either completely ignored us or they've doubled down. And Mm. we've been accused of taking things out of context and (laughs) um, just not caring about men, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's been discouraging. What's been really encouraging is that people are actually listening. You know, there's this scene in The Morning Show, which is a show on Apple TV, good. where Jennifer Aniston, for anyone who's seen it, um, the Jennifer Aniston character just loses it in a board meeting and says, you guys aren't listening. Mm. You don't have the power anymore. And (laughs) that's how I kind of feel about what's going on right now is... I think a lot of these big name authors, the big name publishers, the, the big radio shows, they think they still have power, but they don't Mm. because women are standing up and it's as if we're seeing the emperor's new clothes, that story being lived out. Mm. And I feel like I'm the little boy who's saying the emperor has no clothes. And then all the women around me are saying, yeah, I thought that too. (laughs) I've thought that my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, now I can finally say it. Um, and I've been really encouraged by how many women have have found a lot of freedom reading the book, how many counselors love the book and are mm-hmm. recommending the book, but even how many guys are reading it. We've had so many pastors. I had a pastor send me two sermons that he made on the book today. And I get that like every week. A lot of pastors are reading it. And I think there's a lot of hunger for this because there just hasn't been mm-hmm. healthy teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that it is because so much of evangelicalism is all tied up in this narrative that men have to be in power. Mm. And if we give in in the sex realm, then what else is going to fall? Mm. And so they're doubling down and they're not listening. Yeah. Um, and then when you look at the people who have written the best-selling books, you know, Emerson Egrich, um, Gary Thomas, um, Tim LaHaye, uh kevin lee like they tend to be pastors Mm -hmm. i guess kevin Lehman's a psychologist but like it mostly is pastors and they're writing from their own experience they're not writing from any scientific data at all Mm -hmm. um and i just want to call the church to more Mm -hmm. like jesus is the way the truth and the life if he's the truth we shouldn't be scared of data
0: right Well, and I think even in my my own experiences, you know, my my book came out earlier this year, Sexless in the City, and a huge reason why I wrote that book is because I was on this seven-year journey of figuring out what does the Bible really say about sex? I grew up in purity culture. I have been abstaining from sex this whole time and then realizing Oh my gosh, like everyone who's ever told me that is a white man who got married when he was like 19 and, <laughs> uh, and now these same men are telling me that online dating is a sin and that oh just so many problematic stuff and then a lot of those same men are also being exposed for infidelity or sexual compromise in their marriage and I just feel like it I like boils me inside to feel like, man, we have to be saying these things. Again, like as I was reading so much of your book, I thought, yes, of course, we should be kind to our spouses. Of course, we shouldn't coerce or force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. Of course, we should be talking about consent. But you said really clearly in your book that, so you, you guys Study did this in-depth study on thirteen best-selling Christian books on mm-hmm. marriage and sex, and then
1: you had a control book by um, John Gottman. Yes, John Gottman. Seven principles for making marriage work. Yes, yep.
0: <laughs> and that was, I believe. Correct me if I am wrong. The the non-Christian best-selling book on sex and marriage
1: was the only book that addressed consent. It's the only book that said the word consent in the sexual way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that disgusting? it's
0: like such a big problem i'm i'm like the injustice of it all like isn't the message of jesus supposed to be this beautiful healing good news message for all people in all areas of our lives but unfortunately it often seems like really really good news if you're a man <laughs> and in america if mm-hmm. if you're like a white person and i'm like man we've i feel like we've really gotten it wrong and i think even saying that sometimes, and you expressed it earlier, I've gotten feedback, oh man, you're just a man hater. And I'm like, no, I actually really love men. I just believe that men are animals. I believe that men have integrity and can show up with um, taking responsibility over the space they take up in the world. And I believe that women have autonomy. I believe we all do. And so All that being said, I could go on and on and on about that. But you talk specifically about the idea of the obligation sex message Mm -hmm. in your book. And I've never heard that phrase before. And so I was wondering if you could unpack what is the obligation sex message?
1: Yes. So it's kind of a phrase that we made up, but... It is the idea, um, and we, the way that we phrased the question on our survey, uh, was we asked women if they had ever been taught or if they had ever believed that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And, um, 43% of our survey respondents said that they had been taught that before marriage and 39% said that they entered marriage believing it. Mm. So we called that the obligation sex message, um, and of everything that we measured, that was the most toxic. Mm. That was the one that had the worst effects on the orgasm rates, the worst effects on marital satisfaction, the worst effects on um, arousal levels. But what was so interesting to us is the effects that it had on the rates of sexual pain. Mm. Um and I, this is not something which is talked about enough. And this was something we really, really wanted to dig deep into because it has been known for over 50 years in the gynecological journals that Christian women suffer from vaginismus, which is a sexual disorder where um, the muscles in the vaginal wall contract uh, and are just tight and it makes penetration really painful, if not impossible and we've known for over 50 years that evangelical women suffer from this at roughly twice the rate of the general population like this is this is our problem um now it's not just christian women it's also muslim conservative muslim women conservative jewish women if you've ever seen the netflix series unorthodox there is an amazing depiction of vaginismus in that the best i've ever seen on any show um but this is largely our problem and nobody talks about it mm. and what we found was that believing the obligation sex message increases the chance of a woman experiencing vaginismus to almost the same statistical effect as prior abuse. The confidence intervals are only separated by 0.1%. So the confidence intervals almost overlap, which means they're almost the same statistical effect as abuse. And it makes sense because abuse says to a woman, you don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. And the obligation sex message says the same thing. And so our bodies interpret it as trauma. Wow. That's
0: like, I feel like a pause and rewind and and listen moment. Um, That's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And I guess like my, my biggest question is, why and how is that being taught? Like where in the Bible are people pulling these messages that say women, your body isn't your own. You have to, you are obliged to give your husband whatever he wants, whenever he wants. One of my my friends, I talk about this in my book, came to hang out with me and she was like in this flurry. She just met with her mentor and her mentor was like, And this is in New York City. We're not in, you know, the backwoods or anything. (laughs) Her mentor in New York City said, your job is to keep your husband's belly full and to keep him sexed up in the bedroom. Otherwise, he'll watch porn, he'll leave you. Like, that's your job. And I'm like, says who? So can you unpack, Mm -hmm. what are some of the Bible verses that are
1: used to defend this this ideology? A lot of it comes from a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5, which I will quote, sort of from memory, so I'm not going to get these perfect. Okay. But <laughs> they basically say that a husband must fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to the husband. Um, and the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband. And likewise, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. And then the important part And do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you can devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you for your lack of self-control. And so those verses that a wife's body belongs to her husband and that you're not to deprive each other are used to tell women, you need to have sex whenever he wants because you're not to deprive him. And there are so many problems with that interpretation. Um, but let's just start with one. If I were to say to you, you need to have sex with him, what is it that you think I'm saying? Like, chances are you're picturing something really specific in your head, right? And you think that I'm as I'm saying, okay, you need to let his penis enter your vagina and move around until he climaxes. Cause that's the way we define sex, mm-hmm. you know, penis and vagina climax. Um, but that's the definition of intercourse mm-hmm. <laughs> and If that's what we think sex is, like she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be lying there in emotional turmoil or she could be in physical pain. She could even be being coerced and it would still count as having sex. Mm. And that's not the biblical definition of sex. Like in that definition, her experience is completely irrelevant. Yeah. And that's just not how the Bible talks about sex.
0: Okay, I want to ask you how, how do you think the Bible talks about sex, but I also want to address another passage that feels wildly misinterpreted and used to position men in a higher position than women is Ephesians 5. Mm-hmm. We got, you know, wives submit to your husband, your body is, you know, your body is not your own.
1: Um, so yeah, can you talk about Ephesians 5 as well? Sure. Okay. Well, let's start with what the Bible says about sex. I think, I mean, and, and in the book, I think we have seven P words, like it's pressure-free, it's pure, it's personal, it's what, you know, I'm going to give you three that sum the whole thing up, okay? Because mm-hmm. it's too hard to give all of them. <laughs> but the book delves into a lot more of them. But in summary, I think Genesis 4, there's this funny verse where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And and it's really easy to gloss over that verse and laugh and think that God's embarrassed of saying the real word. But but actually the Hebrew root of the word to know is the same as the Hebrew root in where in the Psalms when David says, Search me and know me, O God. Know my inmost heart. And I think God's telling us sex is more than physical. It's this deeply intimate experience. Sex is supposed to be something which shows a deep longing to be connected in every way. So it's not just physical, it's intimate. We know from Song of Solomon that it is pleasurable for both. I mean, the woman talks more in Song of Solomon than the guy, like she is having a good time, okay? Mm -hmm. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, the verses that I just quoted, it's totally mutual. Everything he gets, she gets too. So in the Bible, sex is something which is mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. So if he is wanting one-sided intercourse where she feels used and she doesn't feel any pleasure, she's already being deprived and those verses don't even apply. Mm. And yet those are the verses that are used to coerce women into sex. And that was never the intention. I mean, first of all, the intention of those verses was Paul was Paul was addressing um, the Corinthians where people were getting married, but then pledging celibacy because they thought this was holier. And Paul was saying, no, guys, you're married. You're allowed to do stuff. <laughs> you know, so it, it was it was fighting against the celibate lifestyle once you're married. And then the funny thing is everyone, no one ever quotes verse six. Do you know what verse six is right after that bit that I quoted? Tell us, tell us. Verse six, Paul says, I say this as a concession, not a command. Mm. He's deliberately saying that do not deprive is not a command. And yet we all treat it like it's a command. It's just crazy. Wow. So I mean, I do believe that sex is is an integral part of a healthy marriage, but the healthy marriage has to come first. Mm-hmm. And that's what our survey found too. You cannot create a healthy marriage on the back of sex. A healthy marriage is a prerequisite.
0: For those of you who do not know what that means, complementarianism is this is the ideology of male headship. So that a man is the head of the household and that women are helpmates or quote-unquote helpmates supposed to support and serve, submit their husbands, whereas the egalitarianism ideology, in essence, is that God created man and woman equal value and equal worth, Um, equal value, equal worth, equal role, whereas complementarianism is equal but different. Did you know that 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair? If you're among them, no, you are not alone and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair but restored their confidence too. Nutrafol offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding, thank God, <laughs> through all stages of life. Healthier hair growth takes time. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months of Nutrafol. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. I use Nutrafol not necessarily because I have thinning hair, but because I love the benefits of thicker, fuller hair through the use of ingredients that are actually good for my body as a whole. You can grow thicker, healthier hair by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code CAT to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. So visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair's needs. So visit neutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair's needs. Get $15 off at neutrafol.com. that's N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com and use promo code CAT. We are supported by Satya Jewelry. I am such a fan of dainty, delicate, and feminine jewelry. I also am a firm believer that the physical is always an invitation to the spiritual. This is why I'm so excited to be partnering with New York City female-founded jewelry company, Satya Jewelry. Satya means truth in Sanskrit. And Satya Jewelry has been creating inspiring, spiritual, and intentional jewelry since 2002. Satya jewelry creates beautiful spiritual pieces using sacred and meaningful symbols and semi-precious gemstones renowned for their healing properties. Cast in sterling silver and 18 gold plate, each Satya jewelry design is created to bring joy, peace, and hope as a celebration of all backgrounds. I am currently wearing the Eternal Seeker Choker Necklace. It's so feminine. I love it so much. It's gold-plated with these beautiful Labradorite gems throughout, and the intention behind the gemstone is imagination, perseverance, and truth, which I know I could use some more of that in my life, y'all. In partnership with the Satya Foundation, Satya Jewelry has helped raise over $1 million in donations to help empower and support children worldwide through social and economic initiatives. To dive into the beautiful world of Satya Jewelry, visit www.satyajewelry.com and use promo code RC15 for 15% off your first order. That's www.satyahewelry.com jewelry.com with promo code RC15. What has been so hard for me as I was reading your book, Sheila, is all I can see over and over and over again is how problematic the complementarian ideology is in the church. Because it seems like the idea of male headship, of men being above women, women needing to submit to their husbands. It seems as though this is perpetually hurting women in general, but especially when it comes to the bedroom and sex. And so I wanted to know what you
1: thought about that. There's definitely a trend where There's male entitlement in the church. So the idea that women need to submit. So if he wants sex, she needs to give it. If he wants this particular kind of sex, she needs to give it. The most blatant example that I can think of is the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. My daughter, my oldest daughter, who's one of the co-authors of The Great Sex Rescue, she had a baby girl three weeks ago. So I'm a new grandma Uh of a granddaughter, which is awesome. Um, And she had an emergency C-section. Everything's fine. But it was a little bit scary there for a minute. Um, but, you know, here she is, she's three weeks postpartum. And we took a look last week at what message a lot of these evangelical books give to postpartum women. So these are women who either have bad tears from childbirth um, or else C-section <laughs> recovery, or, you know, they're likely not sleeping. Um, their milk supply is still getting regulated, they're exhausted, they might be suffering from postpartum depression. I mean, this this is a pretty big deal to have a baby. This is a pretty big deal on your body. And yet when evangelical books talk about the postpartum period, what they say is that it's very important for women to understand that men still need sexual release. So, for instance, the book Intended for Pleasure, which is one of those iconic sex books, says that it's important during the period of abstention, so during those six weeks where you can't have sex, that she gives him manual stimulation at the same sexual frequency as they were having sex before. Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music, which is a really big seller, said that during the postpartum period, she can give him a hand job when he's ready to climb the walls. (laughs) And so these books are saying that after a woman is pushed at a baby and she's not sleeping and she's trying to get used to being a mom, the main concern should be the number of the husband's ejaculations. Rather than telling the husband, you need to care for your wife.
0: Wow. So it's like... The woman has gone through this traumatic life experience, really, and yet the guy's like, "Well, I'm. Can't you see I'm having a hard time here? <laughs> can't you see that I yeah, have these exactly. too? It it seems absurd when you say it.
1: I know. And there is even a book by Gary Thomas, which didn't make it into the Great Sex Rescue because it was released in October. So it's a more recent book. So this is a seriously recent book. Okay, and Gary Thomas read The Great Sex Rescue while he was writing Married Sex, and he still said this. He said that the reason that men like it when you give handjobs postpartum is partly because of how excited you get and how aroused it gets. So he likes hearing you moan. He likes feeling the wetness on his thigh, he likes feeling um, your excitement build as his excitement grows. And he's, he's describing a woman getting aroused, giving her husband a handjob postpartum. Mm. Now, if you're the kind of woman who likes to give handjobs postpartum, like more power to you, and there are some women who really enjoy that, but the vast majority, and I've done surveys on this, um, the vast majority do not want to do that because mm. they're still in recovery. And this idea, it sounds like he's describing porn. It really does mm. because in porn, women get aroused just by a man ejaculating and getting excited. So even if the woman is not getting any stimulation, is not getting any attention herself, she's still portrayed as being orgasmic because she's orgasmic because he is. Mm. And so his sexual response is the focus of everything. And that is the way that these books talk about about women. And it's just wrong. Yeah. 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 I'm just having
0: a hard time like sitting here. I'm like squirming because I just want to go run a marathon or something. And just why is this happening? Like, why is this the message? And we're about to get to some questions from the audience. But um, I just want to ask you from all the research you've done, why is this the message? When we have a message that is supposed to be really good news for all people, but it seems like mainly good news for men, and especially
1: sexually. Like, where is this coming from? I think in the evangelical church, we're very wedded to the idea that men are in charge of women. And people really don't wanna let go of that. And male entitlement is a huge thing. Mm. And the funny thing is, they're missing out on great sex. Like, great sex comes when women feel empowered, when women feel like they matter. When women feel manipulated or coerced or pressured into sex, sexual satisfaction for both people goes way down. Mm. But, you know, what was interesting is on all the beliefs that we measured. So a woman should have frequent sex with her husband to keep him from watching porn. Um, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. A woman's obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Like all the beliefs that we measure, they all result in lower marital satisfaction, lower orgasm rates for women, lower arousal rates, more sexual pain. But, they do result in a slightly higher frequency of sex. Mm. And I think what's happened is that many evangelical men are so out of touch with their emotions and do not understand intimacy, like real intimacy at all, that the only measure that they have for marital success is the number of times they have sex per week. Mm -hmm. And so they will settle for wrecking their marital and sexual satisfaction of their wives just so that they get more sex that's powerful and it's really heartbreaking
0: like what i've just been ruminating on as i've been reading your reading your book and just processing is like where do we go from here like <laughs> i mean like currently right now i'm i'm not going to church and this has been the first time in 20 plus years that i haven't been actively consistently a part of of a church community and that's for a bunch of different reasons i moved recently i haven't really found my footing in my new city but also i feel like it's stuff like this where i'm just like i don't know where and how i fit into this conversation anymore And I feel like I've been this like whistleblower (laughs) my whole life of the oppression (laughs) that I and so many people have experienced in the church. And I'm just like, it's wrong. It feels like anti-gospel. It feels like so not how God intended. So where do we go
1: from here? Like, what do we do? Can I take you back 500 years? Sure. I would love that. So, okay, I want you to picture what it would look like in the year let's say 531 okay 521 doesn't quite work but 500 mm-hmm. er, sorry 1531 um so martin luther has already paid you know nailed his wittenberg theses to the doors 99 theses and his pamphlets are spreading like crazy it's been going on for a little over a decade now and a lot of people have totally bought into his message. They know that the church is corrupt. They want something new. They want something real. What would it look like for them to follow Jesus at that point in time in 1531? It wouldn't necessarily look like they're going to church because churches hadn't evolved yet. And, and, yet, and so what it looked like to follow Jesus then was very confusing because they were in such a time of flux but their children, you know, 20 years later would be occupying Sunday schools Mm -hmm. because churches changed in the next 20 years because there was enough pressure. And I think what we're seeing right now is a tremendous time of flux. So many people are saying we can't live with this kind of teaching anymore. We just want emotional health, We want stuff that's true and that's biblical and that isn't harmful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when there's enough people saying that, what happens is those people leave churches and eventually there's enough of us on the outside that new forms of worship are going to split, are going to come up. And I don't know what those forms are going to look like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think we're all just figuring it out. Yeah, But Jesus is still here. And I don't think we need to be scared of that because God doesn't depend on human institutions. Mm. The Holy Spirit is still here. And I think if we cling to Him, He's going to show us what it will look like. But this isn't the first time in history this has happened. Mm. And so just think back, okay, in 1531, what would it have looked like? People wouldn't have known what to do either. Mm -hmm. But within 20, 30 years, things had changed. And I think we're going to see that again.
0: Wow. That actually really encourages me personally, because I it's been really interesting having this platform at this specific time in my own faith. You know, I, I have this very Christian message. I just launched a book with Sondervan, and I'm like, I haven't gone to church in over a year. And the me 10 years ago <laughs> would think, well, we really need to be praying for her. And I actually feel in a really good place in my faith, but it feels— it feels hard and scary. And one of the reasons why I have taken a step back is because I wanted to know who am I outside of Wednesday night, small group. Who am I outside of prayer team? Mm -hmm. Who am I outside of this social club essentially that I've been a part of that I've loved. And so much of my church experience has really been beautiful. But as I've taken a step back, there's been moments where it's almost like I left the party and got home and and realized, oh my gosh, I'm actually a stranger from the person I love the most. You know, you can like put the pictures on yep. Instagram or, you know, put your hand on your partner's back at the party and then you get home and you're strangers. I think I realized like, who am I outside of this? And then as I've taken a step back, Ben, just wondering how do I fit into this and also feeling shame. For man, I feel confident in why I've taken a step back, but everyone in my world thinks I'm massively struggling.
1: <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I just
0: feel like there's so much. And I think the pandemic was a huge uh, catalyst for me and a lot of people of things that were mattered to me, but weren't deal breakers are, are now deal breakers i.e. the treatment of women yep. i.e. the oppression of women i.e. the um homophobia i.e. you know racism so many different things that of course those should have been deal breakers all along and i'm embarrassed that they weren't um but it's hard reading reading your book i just felt like what i don't want to do is be like i hate christians i hate the church cuz i can get there like I'm like, ah, oh, Christians are the worst. <laughs> like, and so that's why I want to ask mm-hmm. you, like, where do we go from here? And even just practically, are there like even just a few things that you that you could give someone listening to this to hang their hat on? On okay, like the obligation sex message, we we can say very securely that that is not rooted in scripture. It is not God's heart. Like, you don't owe anyone anything ever. But are there maybe like? Two or three ways that you can say, okay, if you do want to have a healthy sex life, a mutually beneficial, mutually pleasurable, like what are a few steps to take to get there?
1: Okay, well, obviously I'm gonna say read the great sex rescue, but I don't just mean that <laughs> like course. for myself. And <laughs> but honestly, like, like I think it's so important for us to recognize how things got so off the rails. And the whole point of our book is to say that that maybe the reason that people are struggling sexually is because of what we've been taught. Like, it's not your fault. Mm. It's not your fault. It's not your partner's fault. It's not, you know, it, it's just that we were taught the wrong thing. And when you can recognize that and see, okay, it's not just me, that is so validating and freeing. And, and that's the message that we get mm. from so many readers. I think though, the next step really needs to come with the realization that the only reason these messages were taught and became so endemic in the evangelical world is because people bought the books. It's because when churches ran love and respect book studies, people went. (laughs) Mm. You know, it's because when people had, you know, a marriage day, Where they were talking about gender roles and complementarianism, people went, even though they disagreed with it. Mm. And if people stopped buying the books, if we'd said to our pastors the next time they try to run a love and respect book study that that's just wrong, and I'm going to tell everyone in my church how wrong it is, (laughs) you know, then they would stop doing it. Like the only reason these people have power is because we've given it to them. And so we need to start taking it back <laughs> and realize, no, wait, I don't have to buy this stuff. I don't have mm-hmm. to believe this stuff. I can, I can go to Jesus myself. And I, if I think that this is wrong and if there's good scriptural evidence that there, that this is wrong and there is, you know, then I can look at something new. And so I think that's a big part is just mm-hmm. not being part of the evangelical industrial complex. And when you know something is wrong, speak Up, get rid of the books that are toxic. Go to your church library and purge it if you're still going to church. You know, tell your sister if you see it on her bookshelf, like speak up. And then the next thing I would say is in the church, we need to have a much bigger respect for science. And I know that's a really political statement to make right now with regards to COVID and all that stuff. And I don't mean it in regards to COVID, although there's a point there too. But let me give you an example with Tim Keller, because he's from New York and you're from New York, mm-hmm. so it fits. Um, one of the saddest anecdotes that we had in the Great Sex Rescue was a story that he told in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And he's a pastor of a mega church and he runs a big evangelical movement. And he wrote this big marriage book. And he tells the story of when they were first married sex was awkward. And he said, and if I asked her afterwards how it was, and she said, it just hurt, I would be devastated. And so would she. Mm. And we realized that working towards her orgasm was causing stress. And so we decided to just concentrate on what we could give rather than concentrate on what we could get. And from that anecdote, we hear, first of all, that sex is hurting for her and she's not saying anything. She's enduring it. And he never says that's wrong. Mm. He just says that they were devastated, but he never says, wow, okay, I told her to tell me if it hurt. He never says that. And we're a community where 22% of women suffer from vaginismus, and he never mentioned it. And I've talked to so many women since who've said, I endured a decade of sexual pain because I read the meaning of marriage. And what I read was Kathy... Keller endured sexual pain. And so I was supposed to as well. Now I don't think Tim Keller meant that. I don't think Tim Keller even knew what vaginismus was. But that's the problem is that we have let pastors who do not have training in sex write our sex books. And it needs to stop because you need to know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, and then to say that they're going to concentrate on what they can give rather than what they can get, okay, but he's still orgasming and she's not. What exactly is she giving? And it's making it sound like she's selfish for wanting to get. But studies will repeatedly tell you that the only way that women can reach orgasm is if they concentrate on their own bodies, not on their husband's bodies. Conversely, husbands tend to be better lovers if they concentrate on their wife's body rather than their own body. So sex works better when both people concentrate on their wife. <laughs> But to say that she is supposed to be concentrating on him and focusing on what she can give rather than what she can get actually works against orgasm. And, you know, this is the kind of advice that we're giving. It, it isn't accurate. It mm-hmm. isn't scientifically accurate. Yeah. And we're never going to get scientifically accurate stuff Unless we start saying, just because you're a pastor, you're not equipped to talk about marriage or sex or parenting. Having an MDiv means that you can talk about the Bible. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you're (laughs) equipped to talk about anything else. We need to start asking for actual data.
0: I freaking meant to that. Okay. So we're going to go into sort of a a uh, rapid fire question answer with Sheila. I got a bunch of questions from the audience this past week and we could obviously spend an hour plus on each of these questions, but we're just gonna, we're just gonna give you a little taste of Sheila's wisdom and truth bombs with the questions you guys sent in. All right. Ready, Sheila?
1: I'm ready. Okay. Number one,
0: (laughs) what is the biggest effect you've seen purity culture have on men? Obviously, we've talked about how harmful it's been for women, but has it also been harmful for men?
1: It really has. And I think one of the biggest things it's done is it has shamed men's sexuality. Um, The whole lust message is so totally ridiculous. The every man's battle message, all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, It has conflated noticing someone is attractive with lusting after them. And it's basically made all men feel like they're monsters and they're lusting all the time when all they're simply doing is noticing that a woman is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And if we can get back to separating those two things, that would be so much more helpful. Like the idea that the only way to defeat lust is to bounce your eyes and not look at women, that's not biblical. Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And... The lust message tells men that if you find a woman attractive, you're going to be tempted to lust after her and that's going to lead you to lusting after her and so you must never ever notice that any woman is beautiful. It's like, no. He said a woman who looks, a man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. A deliberate mindset combined with a deliberate action. Noticing a woman is beautiful is not lusting. Seeing a woman is beautiful is not lusting. Even looking is not lusting. It's looking with lust. And so I think that's a huge issue. Men have just felt helpless. And that's why we've had all these modesty rules on women because men feel like there's nothing I can do because they're trying so hard not to notice and noticing should never be the issue. Yeah. It also says that if a man notices a woman, the
0: only the only end game there is sex or abuse or rape or, mm-hmm. or lust. Like it, it, there's, it's a very extreme black and white binary way of viewing experiences between people.
1: <laughs> so, so much wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, it sexualizes everything. Like, yeah. like you, it's possible to see per- someone as a whole person made of the image of God and not lust after them. Right, Exactly.
0: Now, number two, what are some questions you can ask on a date to see if the other person has a healthy view of sex?
1: (laughs) That's a good Um, question. (laughs) It is. Oh, gosh, I would ask them about lust. Honestly, I would I would ask, um, what do you think of every man's battle? I think Mm. that's a good litmus test. I would say to him, do you think women need respect or just love? Mm. Um. (laughs) And if they say women need love and men need respect, just run, run really (laughs) hard for the hills, (laughs) Um, you know? uh, And I I would say, you know, when you're on a first date, it's not as big a deal, but, um, you know, as you get more into the relationship just realizing that everyone is responsible for their own stuff. Like she is not responsible to keep him from using porn and he's not responsible to keep her from using porn. Like everyone's got to deal with their own baggage and you can't put that on someone else.
0: Now, next question. Have your findings changed or affected your views on sex before marriage?
1: One of the things that didn't make it into the book, because we didn't run the stat in time, but it's out in, um, I have two new books coming out in March, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, is that couples where you only ever had sex with your now spouse... Um, but we compared people who had sex before the wedding to people who had sex after the wedding. And then we we um, uh, we controlled for abuse, prior abuse. Um, you're 25% more likely to experience vaginismus if you wait for the wedding night. Interesting. So you have less sexual pain if you have sex first. Um, I think we need to have a more um, nuanced conversation about this. I certainly, I'm not, you know, I'm, it's still something I'm exploring. I really want to do another survey on this. I Mm -hmm. really, really like this is, this is a big area of um, research. I would love to do on, on sort of sexual debuts and, Mm -hmm. and how they occur and what happens and, um, what kind of pleasure a woman feels and how that affects orgasm rates later on. I would, I really want to do that. Hopefully I'll get time to do that research project, but. I do think we need to completely change the expectations. You know, if you are waiting for the wedding night or the wedding or marriage or whatever you want to call it, we need, what I say is, do not aim for intercourse, aim for arousal. Mm-hmm. Just figure out her arousal. Figure out her, her orgasm first. And then you can worry about intercourse because what happens is women feel pressured to have intercourse, which is the obligation sex right there. Mm-hmm. And then they end up having it when they're not aroused at all. And vaginismus is a very common result. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is just the way that we have taught couples that, that, that the first sex sexual encounter is supposed to happen.
0: Now, do you believe it's possible to be like a Bible-believing, I love God, I love Jesus, all the things, and have sex before marriage and it not be a quote-unquote sin? Oh, gosh.
1: I don't know. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure that one out. I can tell you that what I do believe is that when we follow God, that we experience better better emotional health on every way in every way and that would that would mean better sexual health. and so when i start to see results that waiting for marriage leads to worse results in certain areas that tells me that we may be thinking of this wrong. because jesus said that a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Mm. and you know if we look in the new testament The idea that Joseph had to divorce Mary before they were even married because engagement was considered such a strong commitment. I just wonder if seeing marriage as starting at the wedding may be more of a new way of seeing it. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to explore is like, is our conception of marriage more of a, a modern version of it <laughs> you know I, I, I'm i a big genealogist I love doing my family tree and I had people in the Isle of Wight in England who got married like six years after they had their first kid um, they were already committed they had a whole bunch of kids but then the preacher comes through town so they get married like <laughs> you know I, I think I think we need to I, I think commitment is is huge I think what marriage looks like is up for debate. Hmm. So do you have about
0: seven more hours and maybe a bottle of wine or two to talk about this? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm here. I am listening. Um... Oh my gosh. We just opened up a whole another can of worms for people. And I'm so glad that you said what you said. These are questions that I'm asking myself as a single person who just wrote a book about being a 36-year-old virgin. I'm asking myself these same questions. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sheila, for being willing to go there and holding space and asking the hard questions and also being a truth teller and saying just, just because... Just because it's been this way doesn't mean it has to be this way. Or one of my friends, Ruthie Lindsay says, just because you know a story by heart doesn't make it true. So thank you for for all the work that you put into this book. Thank you for all the time that you have taken to chat with me. I just seriously wish I could literally sit and talk with you for another seven hours. And I just appreciate (laughs) your time and your heart and everything you're doing.
1: Well, thank you. It's been great to be here. All right, folks, that
0: was Sheila Ray Gregoire from The Great Sex Rescue. If you haven't read it, hopefully by now you have already ordered it off Amazon or are driving to Barnes & Noble. But if you haven't, please check her out. And I know that we opened a huge can of worms on this episode, especially at the very end where I asked her, Is it okay to have sex outside of marriage and love God? So why don't you hop on over to Patreon? We're going to continue this conversation specifically there for this week. Patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for submitting your questions to this episode. I really appreciate it. And if you have any other questions about this specific episode or any other guests or questions, topics you want us to cover in 2022, please email social at therefinedwoman.com and we would love to hear from you. All right, get ready for next week. It is the official last episode of 2022 and I am talking about how I realized in 2021 that I really suck at dating. So get ready for that. It's going to be an honest, fun, little bit of a painful conversation. We will chat next week.